Uh, last week, we started into the Gospel according to Luke, and where we landed in those first four verses is that Jesus is the most important person in the universe. Like, He has been, He is, and He always will be the most important person in the universe. Now, when you and I think about important people in our world, we typically experience an important person with an introduction. So, for example... If Ryland, who's talking right now, would be walking into a room, I might introduce him as a very important person. You see what I just did there? I was having a really hard time concentrating. (laughs) Okay. With that said, with that said, all right. But the point is still there. Like, I was, the point stays. Now, let's go with another one, another example. The President of the United States. The President of the United States walks into the room for the State of the Union address. What happens before he ever enters the room? Someone comes and announces, heralds his presence. Then he shows up. I don't know if you've been watching the U.S. Open, maybe. Maybe some of you have been watching the U.S. Open. And this was a big one for Serena Williams because this was her last U.S. Open. And so every match she had could be the last in the U.S. Open. And that first match, I think every celebrity in the universe was at that match at Arthur Ashe Stadium uh, a couple weeks ago. And I don't know if you were watching, but before she ever stepped on to the court, they had this like major introduction, introductory video where they basically made her God. And then they brought her on to the court. I mean, it was a very big moment. It was a really big introductory video. But man, I thought this, but this is what we do for important people. We, we, we announce, we introduce, they have a herald that says they're coming. So it would only be fitting that when the most important person in the universe shows up, he's going to have a herald. He's going to have someone announcing his arrival. And that's exactly where Luke's going to pick up the account. Luke is going to start the account by describing this herald. The beginning of this life of this herald. Let's pick up. We're in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. You will be a joy, he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children, the disobedient 
to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. Now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor. And taken away my disgrace among the people. There's so much here. We can't even cover all of it. But we want to draw out many of the key insights in this passage. Right out of the gate, I think we notice that the story of John the Baptist, the herald of Jesus, is going to start with these two old people. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there's this thing about Zechariah and Elizabeth that really might catch your attention like it did mine. If you notice, if you notice in verse 6, both of them were righteous, observing all the law, the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. And it would seem when you read that description, so we, what, we got two old people who live perfect lives. Is that how the story starts? Perfect people? I mean, in our study of the Psalms, we've made very clear no one's perfect, right? So when we read that, when we read here, that you have two blameless people, you gotta, we're going to have to understand what are, what are we talking about. Well, there's this principle when we interpret Scripture that we need to always hold on to. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. We're always interpreting Scripture with Scripture, never grabbing one in isolation. And that's important here because if you remember in our study of the Psalms, that thing I just referred to, Psalm 14, take a look, Psalm 14, Psalm of David, he wrote this, verse 2 and 3, which Paul will pick up in Romans, by the way. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Not Zachariah. Not Elizabeth. None do good. None come into the presence of God perfect. It's just not how it happens. So what do we make of someone being declared blameless or here righteous? How do you get that label? I mean, how in the world do you get, are you uh, categorized, given the label, righteous, living blamelessly? Well, this is key. This is a key to that key truth throughout Scripture about how you and I are justified. Actually, the Apostle Paul will pick this up in his great teaching on justification in the Roman letter. Here it is. Habakkuk 2.4. I'm going to read this out of the English Standard Version. Here in Habakkuk, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's someone that's proud and arrogant. But the righteous shall live by his faith. How do you get the label righteous? How would you even be described as living blamelessly? It's not because you live perfect or sinless. It's because you live by faith. It is by faith alone that you are justified. 
that you are made right with God. It is by faith, not because you're sinless. So when we see Zechariah and Elizabeth described as righteous, it is a hyperlink back to this principle taught so clearly in Habakkuk 2.4. Again, a principle that Paul is going to pick up in his Roman letter, which is the pinnacle of his teaching on justification by faith. It is a core, key, essential Christian doctrine. Now, this is important. Why harp on this? Because Elizabeth and Zechariah were people who walked by faith. It's not that they were sinless, but they were people of faith. They trusted God. And why that's important for the story is there's this problem Elizabeth has. Remember what the problem is? She can't have a baby. And she's at a point in her life, if you just get right down to it, she's past menopause. She's not having a baby. She is a woman who has lived a a, a life of barrenness, and she's going to go into her old age barren. She will not have children. And you might wonder, is that because of her sin? I'm sure she asked that question. Is it something she did? Like, did she just not do something right long ago and God is punishing her? She can't have a baby because of something she did maybe somewhere in her past. Well, what we know right out of the gate is this barrenness is not because of some sin. This is a woman of faith. So you can't look at her barrenness, her inability to have a child. You can't look at it and go, man, I wonder what she did. Like, man, why did God punish her that way? She's a woman of faith. Her barrenness is not because she sinned. There's something else going on. What we're going to find is that her barrenness has actually been caused by God in order to display God's glory. You know there is something more important than human happiness. It's God's glory. Actually, you will be most happy when God is most glorified. Because that's the most... That's the most pleasurable, enjoyable, happy thing in the world is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally in relationship full of love. There's nothing boring about that. The only thing boring about that is our perception, not that reality. And so here God has caused this barrenness years before in order to display His glory. One scholar says it this way. I'm gonna, let's read a little bit longer quote, but man, I think it gets to the point. Whatever heartache Elizabeth suffered was not some kind of punishment for her sin. Our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. I want to say that again. Like, repeat that. Our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Sometimes God allows us to suffer because He wants to be glorified through our suffering. In this case, Elizabeth was barren for the glory of God. God was not punishing her, but planning a miracle that would get His people ready for salvation. God had something special in mind. And the best way to show that, John was a special child, was bringing him from a barren womb. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened in the history of salvation. There are two other key moments when a child comes from a barren woman and it is a major signal that God is doing something big in the salvation of His people. Maybe you remember these two. God calls a man living very far away from, from Palestine, from what we from ancient Israel, living very far away, calls a man and he says, You go to a land I'm going to give you. 
And actually, I'm going to give you lots of children. And through your family, there's going to be someone that's going to bless the whole world. That man was Abram, who we come to know as Abraham. The only problem with this promise to this man was he was also very old. And guess what? His wife was also old. And guess what? In addition, she never had a baby, couldn't have a baby. At this point, she was never going to have a baby. What a silly promise to say to two older people who are never going to have kids. There's a kid coming. And actually, through that kid is going to come a promise to the whole earth. Well, eventually, God ensures that that woman, Sarai, who we know as Sarah, has a baby. That baby's name is Isaac. And through Isaac will come Christ. So when God made a promise to a barren woman, it was signaling a massive moment in the history of salvation. And guess who gets the glory for that? It's God and God alone. Because you know a woman that old not having a baby. I know you're going to say, well, how old? Let's not get into all the details. She wasn't going to have a baby. But God made a promise. God gets the glory. Then there's this other woman. Her name's Hannah. Hannah is married to a man who also has another wife. That other wife is is having babies every week. She just has a baby after baby after baby after baby. And Hannah's over here wondering, what have I done? Why can't I have a child? And she goes to the temple every year and she's begging God for a child. And he's never giving her a child. And then there's a moment where he says, I'm giving you a child. And there's this child that's going to come from this barren woman. A woman whose womb was closed. Now it's going to be open and it will all be for God's glory. Because that baby will be Samuel. Samuel will be the one who anoints David. And it's through David's line that Christ comes and Christ will rule on David's throne forever and ever. Samuel's this massive moment in the history of salvation. So twice we have. God opening up a barren womb in order to display His glory. And we have to be very careful not to look at that and say, man, God's mean. No, God knows what's the most important thing in the universe, and that's His glory, not our comfort and happiness. Listen, I need that sermon just as much as you do, okay? So I know I'm the one saying it, but I got four fingers pointing right back at me, all right? But this is the way that story is now shaping that we should already be tuned in the way he's written the story. You have people living by faith, one of them barren. Immediately you're queuing in to Sarah and Hannah. And just like in both of those situations, God's going to open a womb. And that person, that man that comes from that womb, will be a very special person, a key moment in the history of salvation. He will, he will, not, he will not have a, a family line that will, that will give us Jesus he will actually show up and verbally point to him and then eventually baptize him in the river Jordan. This is a massive moment. So something's happening. God is about to do something massive in the history of salvation. The, all these promises are beginning to come true. Something's on the move. Then there's also another way we know something's on the move. Not just that there's a, a barren woman who's having a baby, which is a clear signal that something big's about to happen for God's glory. The angel actually makes it very clear. We're going to read it again. 
I know we just read it, but we've got to get it one more time. We're going to read those verses, 13 through 17. I want you to hear what the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah as he's in the temple doing this service to God. He says this. He says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now notice, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You were to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Carol, will you go back one slide? I want to start, start with verse 13. Let's walk through that just real quickly. I want you to see some key things that are signals that something big is about to happen. So right out of the gate, we see that, that Gabriel says your prayer has been answered. Now, you've got to ask, well, what's the prayer he's been praying? You might think the prayer is he's been praying for a child for a long, long time, and now God's going to answer the prayer and give him a child, right? I mean, it just seems logical. They've been barren for so long. Now he's going to have a They prayed for a child. Now he's going to have a child. But there might be another prayer that's being answered. Zacharias in the temple. He is God's representative to the people, and he is the people's representative to God in this most holy moment, in this most holy place. And in that moment, Zechariah is praying, but he's not praying for a baby. When the priest goes into the temple to serve as a representative of the people to God, they are praying for the deliverance of God's people. That's what the priest is praying. Most likely here, the prayer isn't the prayer for a child. The prayer is, God save our people, particularly from the enemy that has invaded the land. Rome is occupying the land in this very moment. Oh God, deliver your people. Bring judgment and deliverance. As one scholar says, he says it this way. We'll go on to now the quote slide. There it is. Of all the things that Zechariah prayed, his main petition was for the salvation of Israel. His people, who in those days were under Roman oppression, were waiting for the ancient promises to be fulfilled for God to come and save them. And so in that, maybe that very moment, he's wording a prayer of salvation, of deliverance for his people. An angel shows up from the presence of God and says, your prayer's answered. And how's it going to happen? It's going to happen as often it has happened in the Old Testament. A child will be promised. God's going to do something big. Because when God says He's going to do something, He does it. And in this moment, it appears it's right on the horizon. There's another thing. Now, Carol, can we go back again to verse 13? I want to come back to that. Those, um, I'm switching back and forth. One more slide over. You'll notice here that He will be filled, right there at the bottom of the slide, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before He is born. Don't miss this. Zechariah would be a man who knew the Scriptures. He's a priest. This is a man well acquainted with the Hebrew Bible. Zechariah, maybe in that very moment, would have, would have noted this is the first time God's ever promised to fill a child with the Holy Spirit before they're born. Never had that been promised, but here it is. Now, some 
have been knitted in the womb. Jeremiah himself was given a, given a commission to be a prophet even before he was born. But here, he's going to be filled with the Spirit before he's ever born. Now you've got to ask, when's that going to happen? Well, what we know is that Luke goes on to tell us the moment she conceives and then how many months she's pregnant. Let's not miss this. The Holy Spirit did not fill a fetus. The Holy Spirit filled a human being from day one. If John the Baptist would have been aborted at seven days, a human being would have been aborted. At no point was John the Baptist a fetus. Here it is very clear, God values all life. Period. And here not only does he value it, he's fulfilling a promise, not outside the womb, but inside from day one. I just want to make sure we're all clear on where Scripture falls with when human life begins. I'm so glad Elizabeth understood when life begins. Let's go on. One more point. One more point. Not only the Holy Spirit filling this baby would be a signal something big's happening. Not only the fact that a prayer's been answered, but if that wasn't enough, you get you you get one like one really big hyperlink to some of these promises in the last thing Gabriel says. Go, let's go one more slide over. Um, there it is. There's all this talk about the power of Elijah in the spirit of the power of Elijah, and you have the hearts of of parents being turned to their children, and and you have. Foolish people turning the wisdom of righteous people. This seems to be all a bit cryptic. Gabriel's actually quoting the promises from the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. It's at that moment in the book of Malachi where a promise comes, right on the cusp of the end of Revelation. That is, that, that we're done. Like from year 400 until we get Jesus, uh, we're not getting Revelation. We're not getting inspired books of the Old Testament God makes a promise. Someone's coming. Someone's coming and they are bringing salvation. Actually, I will be coming myself. You've got to take a look at this. Malachi chapter 3. Take a look. Malachi, oh yes, Malachi 4. We'll do 3 and 4. We'll do 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike down the, strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. God said, I'm coming. I'm actually going to send Elijah before me. That is, someone with the power of prophecy to bring a message of salvation. They're coming and literally hearts are going to be changed. Gabriel quotes that promise. Zechariah immediately would be going to that promise saying, the ancient promises, now they're coming and it will be my son who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Immediately, he's thinking something big's happening. All those things God promised that maybe he had forgotten. He's fulfilling them. And I am being told right now how it will happen. It's amazing. And when God sends, when God comes and even Himself shows up with salvation, a messenger is coming to pave the way. Zechariah would have this right here. He knew these books. 
Malachi 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before who? Before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so here in this moment, as He's in the temple, Zechariah hears that His Son will be that messenger that prepares the way for the Lord to come into His temple. That Lord that's coming, who He will prepare the way for, will be none other than Jesus, God in flesh, the Christ, the Anointed One. So let me summarize all of that this way. Let's summarize it this way. What God says He will do, God does. God promised to bring salvation to His people and He's following through on that promise. God keeps His Word and His Word is solid and unshakable. The reason we need to pull that out of this passage is we jump right into verse 5-25 through 25 and we just assume because we know the story, it had to happen this way. And we forget how that might have, how that hit Zechariah and Elizabeth. These people who were under Roman oppression Living day in and day out wondering when God would do what God said. And I imagine there were many in Israel in that day who believed God had just given up. You go 400 years without hearing from God, He just might have given up. Where's God? And yet this passage declares God will do what He says. God is never late. He is right on time. He arrives just when He means to. And for you Rings fan, yes, I just quoted from Romans. Yeah, all of you are like, that's Gandalf, that's Gandalf. Stick with God right now, okay? Alright. So let's make some application. I just, and what I want to do is I want to pull a couple things out of this, okay? I want to pull a couple of things because this all gets us to the Lord. But I want to pull a couple things out of it. And, and then I want to just drive us to a next step that's going to seem real churchy. But I don't know how, that, I don't know how it gets any more practical. Alright, here we go. First, first thing, and I am literally taking this from a commentary. I could, like, I tried to figure out a way maybe I could say it a little different, like do a semi-plagiarism, but I'm like, no, just quote it. I'm just going to quote it. Here it is. The question to ask about suffering is not, what have I done to deserve this? But how can I glorify God through this? Man, that's a tough one. Because when we go through suffering, golly, me maybe more than all, I am so quick to say, woe is me. And maybe I'm not asking, what did I do to deserve it? But I am asking, why? Why me? And I forget, who's the most important person in the universe? God is. And so the question needs to be, how will I glorify God in this? And how will He glorify Himself? Which is the most important thing in the world. How will He do that through my suffering? This doesn't need to be about me. It's about Him. That's a hard thing to work through. I want to keep reading from this commentary. Um, I'm going to read to you what he says next. Elizabeth is the perfect example. She did not wait for a child before her life could begin. She was busy serving the Lord, walking blamelessly in His commandments. For her, what some people considered a tragedy was an opportunity. No matter what suffering we must endure, and everyone suffers, there is still a way for us to live for the glory of God. And here's a truth. It's a truth that I have not yet got worked into my 
into my muscle memory. But I just know it's true. You will be most happy when God is most glorified. That's just the way this this will work. When you and I are not the center of the universe, we will be most happy. When you are at your most depressed, take a look at who you are looking at most often. I know for me, when I am most sad, I am most often looking at myself. Or I'm looking at someone else wishing I could have what they have. I mean, it's some version of this. It's still me. Our suffering, God will use our suffering for His glory. And so what we need, even with this most complicated topic, suffering is so complicated, so layered, so many varieties. I'm not, I'm not unaware that every one of us has different stories in suffering. But I know this. I know that one of the best things you and I can do is to stamp on our mind logic so it never leaves that truth that whatever happens to us, God will turn to good so that we look more like His Son. You just, you're going to have to lodge that here. Because if you're looking for Fox News or MSNBC to give you that, sorry, not going to happen. That will never show up as breaking news. Breaking news. God is going to turn all things to good for those who love Him. That's never going to show up on your scroll. It's not going to be part of any campaign slogan. No one's making that promise. The only way you're going to pick that up is if you lodge it in the mind. You can't walk around with joy in the midst of suffering by only being filled with the news of the world. You're just not going to do it. Romans 8.28, I feel like we've got to go ahead and read it. It's this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Your suffering will never be wasted. It will be uncomfortable. And you probably won't be too happy. But it will never be wasted. And since God is always good, in the end, it will work out. It always will. Okay, second application. It's real simple on this one. Don't be like Zechariah. Now I've got to tell you, can we just, just for fun. I have lodged in my mind this particular song from this particular Disney movie. Um, we don't talk about Bruno. And I thought maybe there was a way I could work this into that, and there wasn't. So, like, we don't talk about Zechariah, but I didn't know how to word it. So, that's just a little bit into how I prepare a sermon. That was just free. Like, you don't have to charge for that inside information. Um, But if anybody can figure out how to get, we don't talk about Bruno, and this application point, I'd love it. Like, someone's creative enough to do it. But don't be like Zachariah. I was also thinking, like, be like Mike, that that slogan from years ago. But, okay. Here's the point. Don't be like Zachariah. Believe God's Word. Okay, so this 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 has got multiple angles. So if you're like... If you're playing with sin and you're like in secret doing things, you know you should not be doing. You better believe God's word. He sees it and he will deal with you if you continue. So what I'm trying to get at is I don't want this to just be like like rainbows and unicorns. Believe God's word and always have hope. No, believe God's word. He is wrathful God who will judge you if you continue to disobey him and reject him. For your rest of your life. Like, that's what I'm trying to get at. Believe His Word on all things. There's nothing secret about your secret sin. He sees it. 
If you think that gossiping and you can get away with it, no, you will not get away with it. You will reap what you sow. I'm just, I'm going with, believe all of God's word. And also, don't let go of the hope part. If you are suffering, and you have a prognosis that is not good, like your health, it is not a good prognosis for your health, don't you give up on God. He's not going to give up on you. It doesn't mean He will save your life every time. But if you are in Christ, you never die. Your heart's not going to last anyway forever. You get a new heart, and new fingers, and new elbows, and new knees, and new hips, that you never have to get... You never have to get replaced. That's where we're going. What a wonderful hope. You hold on to that too. Alright, so here's the application. I mean the next step. And I don't know that I can get any more practical here. Memorize Romans 8.28. I know that seems churchy. Like, really? You're going to make the Bible part of the application? You can't get any more practical than lodging promise in your mind. Because when you lodge it in your mind, you take that with you everywhere you walk. So when doctor says it's terminal, Romans 8.28, it's right there with you in the hospital room or in the doctor's office. Your loved one has passed. Romans 8.28, it's right there in the receiver. It's in your mind as you get the news. There's nothing more practical than memorize it. Romans 8.28, and you remember... God does what God says. Zechariah didn't believe, but he found out that God's going to do what God says. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. It gives us hope. It also gives us guidance. We want to glorify you. And when we do not, give us the desire to want to. It's like, I want to want to. Now go with us as your word shapes us, as we remember and hold on to that you work for the good of all who love you as you work because you have called us to your purpose. We pray that in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and together we say,